there's two ways to make a legacy in your life, right? And one is to is your children, and it's built into our DNA to procreate. And there's this little, your little mini avatars running around, and it's a slice of you. And the other is to create a piece of art that hopefully can stand the test of time. And I feel like with the business amateurs, we did that. You don't make documentaries usually to make a lot of money. You make them to make a difference. Filmmakers make films, but films make filmmakers. From blockbuster premieres to grindhouse theaters, late night cable to the local video store, there is no greater classroom for aspiring filmmakers than cinema itself. Join your host, Eric Skorzynski, as he dives deep into the minds of legendary directors, producers, actors, and more to discover their biggest influences and to explore the impact their films are leaving behind. This is Film School. Grab your popcorn. Class is about to begin. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Film School podcast. Bobby, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having on me. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. We're off to a good start. I don't even know my lines. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I got to ask you. So um, I, I watched your, your documentary, The Business of Amateurs, which I definitely recommend people check out. Uh, but one of the things I thought was interesting is uh, one of the things that changed your perspective on sports was movies. Uh, so um, you mentioned two movies that really had a big impact on you. You mentioned Rudy and the program. Um, tell me a little bit about those two movies and kind of how they uh, shaped your view on life and athletics. I mean, it's really interesting. If you look at just Rudy kind of romanticizes everything, right? Mm -hmm. It's the underdog story. And Rudy, you're, t you're too small to play football. You can't possibly do it. Mm -hmm. And it's this great underdog. If you yeah. actually ever watch the film of Rudy getting in the game, he was like way off sides when he got that sack, <laughs> just so you know, like there's, <laughs> he was like three steps beyond the tackle before they snapped mm -hmm. the ball, but they were so like ahead of the game or losing that didn't matter. Um, but it was really that romanticism. It was the, the, the polarity that exists within college football, that there's the side where Rudy, where we glorify. And, and that's why the opening of the film was actually, mm -hmm. uh, you know, coming out of the tunnel. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, like, what's it like to come out of the stadium with hundreds of thousands of people? And I'm like, well, it's very fleeting and it's very momentary and, and it's a great memory. But all the other elements that go into it, um, I always felt it was more like the other movie, which was the program, um, which had the great and now late James Kahn um, as the head football yeah. coach and Latimer. And I mean, they've got like sexual assault in there. They've got violence. They got steroids. They got the guy that's trying to get good grades to impress the girlfriends. They have everything in the movie. And it's really the dark side. It's peeling back the curtain behind big time college athletics. And that those are both in 94. And another movie that came out in 94 was also Blue Chips with Nick Nolte hmm. and Shaquille O'Neal. And it was about kind of how all these guys were being paid under the table. Um, and, and, and that was really kind of, uh, if you look at it, it was like trying to push this pure angle that college sports is somehow pure, but it, it really isn't. Um, you know, the coaches are well-paid, the marketing department, everybody's hmm. well-paid. Um, but I remember going and seeing you know, all of those movies in the theater. And um, before I even knew I would, you know, end up playing in, in college football four four years later. And I was drawn to all of them for different reasons, but I really kind of mentioned those because of that, that the, like the bipolar aspect right. of college sports. Yeah. I, I'm curious, like watching those movies. Cause I mean, it's clear from your story. That's why I wanted to start there is like, it's clear that movies can change our outlook on different situations. It can change our perspective. And I think, uh, I mean, you see it with Top Gun. That's been the conversation, like the the great PR that does for, uh, you know, the military and things like that. Um, for you watching those films, was it something that 
you admired the filmmaking of it and it put that fire to go like, oh, I'd love to make movies like this? Or was it purely something that influenced your desire to to get involved in sports? I mean, I've been inspired by other documentaries, mm-hmm. um, Bigger, Stronger, Faster, one of yep. them, uh, Dear Zachary, um, films that have actually had impacts on in the aftermath and the wake of the films. Um, I, I was always just a lover of movies. I'm a Stanley Kubrick, John Hughes kind of nut. Um, and and yeah, I, I was more of a viewer than I would study films at that stage. And I actually had a girlfriend. So I, my schedule in college, I get up at five and I'd have to work out from 530 to 730, go to my business classes from eight to 12. I'd have to eat lunch with my coach voluntarily, who was a psycho. Um, Ed Ogeron, the former uh, LSU head coach, um, literally a, a human psycho. Uh, I could tell a million stories. Some of them I can't tell because they'll probably find me and murder my family. Um, <laughs> and then I'd have to go to like meetings and practice from two mm-hmm. to six thirty, and I would actually went to film classes from seven to ten because my girlfriend was in the film school, mm. and uh, I took like ten classes at USC that I wasn't actually enrolled in. Uh, took the Hitchcock class, and I took all these classes that, and I was an active participant. And sometimes I'd see the professor like in the he's like, "Bobby, you missed the final," and I'm like, oh, "I'm not in the class. I'm just." he's like what he's like you're not you're not supposed to do that but that's pretty cool uh so the only way that i got to spend time with my girlfriend was by going to her film classes and i was like wait you guys get to watch movies and then talk about them that's unbelievable and then i started looking at movies in a completely different way so it wasn't really till i was in college that i really thought Mm -hmm. about the aspect of becoming a filmmaker and yeah i I then became more introspective like we use clips of the blind side in the documentary and that movie i look at it totally different way uh you know the, the guy that wrote that book um you know hancock i think uh, he he wrote the book and he wrote the screenplay which usually you don't see that and he's become yeah. more of a screenplay um you know writer in terms of a career and if you, the, the whole movie and the book starts with um lawrence taylor breaking joe theisman's leg and the, maybe one of the more gruesome sports injuries in television and the ending of the film so if you read the book you're like okay this rich white family takes in this very large african-american and then they steer him towards their university Mm -hmm. Ole miss uh they get him a tutor from Ole miss and the dad's like literally the play-by-play basketball game announcer for Ole miss but then you got you know sandra bullock playing you know um tui the mom and you know the teachers around to be a protector and you know the the whole movie is just totally hollywood bastardized in the sense that this kid was playing varsity as a freshman. Like they didn't introduce him to that. This kid was massive. They didn't pick up any African-American. They picked up a massive human, walking, mm-hmm. you know, and then they, and the end of the movie is Sandra Bullock's character. And I think she won an Oscar for the role. She's like, thank you, Lawrence Taylor. Thank you. Lord. And I'm like, wait a minute, let's just back up. Like you're thanking a guy that ruined someone else's <laughs> sports injury. Like that took this guy's career away for the sake of creating value for the left tackle position, because this large African-American kid could have had access to create value in his life any other way. And I'm like, I don't know. That sounds a little white savior racist to me, but (laughs) you know, the score's swelling and everyone's like, and it's Sandy B, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And and that's, uh, it shows up all the time when people start talking about like the white savior approach to, to filmmaking, like the blind side gets brought up a ton. And it is like, especially now having watched your documentary, like it makes you think about all of those things. You know, it makes you think of all of the the business side of sports. And and for you, um, 
I mean, you mentioned like running through the tunnel, you mentioned like the, the moments that are like incredible, like in, in the moment, uh, when did the curtain start kind of dropping for you where you're like, maybe the college sports world, isn't, uh, all it's cracked up to be, was it pretty quick or was it a long, slow burn? I mean, it was right off the bat because, Mm -hmm. uh, so my coach within the first three months, uh, a guy named John Robinson, who's just a historic you know, won several Rose Bowls and came back to coach again. Everybody that loved me got fired three months in. And um, I don't tell like a lot of these aspects of the story of my story in the documentary, other than some of the mental health things that I've suffered through, because people don't empathize. They're like, oh, he had to go through three days and he almost died in practice. Wow, you got a full scholarship. You know, that there were elements that um, completely altered my view. Like right off the bat, um, I was told I had to show up to run at like four in the morning because I didn't book a tutor um, for all my classes. And I'm like, wait, why do I have to have a tutor? And it was just the assumption that because I'm a football player, I'm going to need help with all my classes. And I mean, I had, you know, I always had the highest GP on the team nearly every year and uh, including walk-ons. And I, I mean, I had almost a 1400 on my SAT. I was in the top 5% of the incoming class. Like you're going to make me have a tutor from another student at the school that maybe even isn't academically at my level. And I got in a big argument. I said, look, if I ever drop below a 3.0 for any reason, you guys can make me do, but I'm not showing up for running because I didn't get a tutor. Um, Or they would check my classes to make sure that I was going to class, which sucked for me because like they made me take certain classes that I already took and they didn't give me credit for when I took them in high school. So statistics and calculus, like man, I wanted to just go sleep, <laughs> but they had right. somebody checking my classes and I'm like, damn it. I can't like skip a class. Cause then I'm, I do have to run for that. But I, they told me I couldn't be in the film school in, in um, the academic center because uh, all of the, the core classes for the film program at USC conflicted with practice. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, wait, what a minute. I can't wait. I can't study what I want to study while I'm yeah. here. You know, I started to feel more like an athlete student than a student athlete. Mm. And uh, what I did is I, I talked to Liz Daly, the dean of the film pro of the film school. And I said, look, I know this doesn't make any sense, but can I just take cinema one-on-one last? <laughs> like, yeah. And <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And she said, yeah. So uh, I was the first player to ever get in the film school there. But when I had to leave practice early in the spring, which we're not even in season, but we'd have spring practice. Um, yeah. Ed Ogeron would cuss me out. Like when I had to leave practice early to go to a business class yeah. and in all of the scenarios, I would just be late to that class. But there was one class that if you were late once, you dropped a whole grade level. Mm. It was like a hardcore professor. Um, and I would literally sprint from practice without showering and show up with seconds to spare just so I didn't have to be perfect on my everything and get a B or a C or right. because I was late twice. And he didn't understand that. He would just cuss me out. Uh, and I was like, why am I made to feel bad for wanting to be a student? Why can't I excel Uh, at both of these things. Um, You know, no one ever said you need to take steroids, but uh, at one point, I don't even think I've ever mentioned this story, but um, Ed Ogeron, who used to coach at Miami, um, he didn't say take steroids, but he, he mentioned a guy named Rusty Medeiros at Miami. He was like, when I was cultured in Miami, he had this real Southern, like, you know, Louisiana, he grew up in a swamp with the frog in his pocket. And, uh, you know, when I was in Miami, uh, Rusty Medeiros, he was just like you. And then uh, he started injecting some bull testosterone, came back a mean son of a bitch, all American. And I'm like, 
okay. I'm, <laughs> I don't know if that was a promo that I got to get on steroids, which I never did steroids. Um, yeah. I actually was medically put on steroids from a severe neck injury my senior year. Yeah. Um, but I, I did kind of have a, a Rudy-esque story within my arc there because at the end of my freshman year, the new coach came in, this guy, Paul Hackett, and it was totally different. John Robinson, you can walk in, you know, he'd stop you, he'd slap you $20. He's like, Bobby, you look hungry, get something to eat. And then he'd pull you in, he'd go, bring me back a chicken sandwich. And he, and yeah. he was like, you know, so it wasn't like he was paid. It was this very father-esque figure. You could walk yeah. in his office anytime. Paul Hackett, you got to set an appointment. You'd wait two hours, they'd reschedule. And finally he sits down, he says, so I hear you're transferring. And I'm like, you understand, I went to USC over Harvard and Stanford specific for a lot of reasons. I created a matrix to figure out where it was going to go. Damn. And uh, I said, no, I'm not transferring. I was like, well, if you're going to transfer, now is going to be time to do it. Because if you wait until the fall, you're going to have to sit out that season. And if you go pack 10, you're going to have to go another two seasons. And that only leaves you one year left to play. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm not transferring. He's like, well, I'm just going to let you know you're not going to play as long as I'm here. So you might as well transfer. Mm. I'm like, whoa. And in my mind, I'm like, I got to prove this guy wrong. Now, what I didn't understand is this is a conversation that a lot of coaches have. Um, I think it probably is something that recently happened when uh, the new coach at SC just took over and you saw all these guys migrate out of the program. And what happens is they go to a place where they can play. And a lot of athletes are sport-centric in their choice of school. Where I was yeah. sports, everything was a part of why I wanted to go to USC. And so I spent three years trying to prove that I should be able to play and practice team all-american you know <laughs> yeah you know three sacks in a row it's the starting offense we played 20 plays the whole season after there was nothing i could do and i was expendable and so what happened is we would have football camps where we they of course right when i graduated they made like <laughs> bills or bylaws that allowed you know two a days you can only do two practices every other day and only one of them can be full pads we were doing three full pad practices in a day Jeez. for 24 days straight um, and I got to tell you, the only, the benefit of that is it makes everything else in life seem, <laughs> seem uh, easy. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, while I was working a full-time job while making that documentary. It was really difficult, but yeah. it wasn't nearly as hard as that. And I, I was one of two players, um, each year that didn't miss one practice and I would play hurt and I would play injured. And I actually gave myself a form of, um, you know, post-traumatic stress because I pushed myself so mentally and physically beyond the point that what happened the third year, um, you know, going into my, my fourth year, but the third year of doing three days with this coach, I, I started wake, I started vomiting before I was waking up hmm. and I would literally start once again, this was something that wasn't in the documentary. Cause I, I think people would just be like, well, this guy's a pussy. And I'm like, well, uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't realize that I had pushed myself so beyond my physical and mental well-being um, outside my comfort zone that, hmm. I had traumatized myself so that when I was dreaming, I was in football camp. And so I would literally be vomiting and it would wake me up. And uh, the third year I was vomiting constantly throughout the day. And I was 255. And within five days, I was 225. Jeez. I lost 30 pounds in five days. And they assigned the, the answer was to assign a water person to me. And uh, so I'm trying to stay hydrated. My throat was actually it was harder to breathe because the scar tissue was making my throat swell. And um, there was always this guy, we were at UC Irvine, this like 90 year old guy that would swim and he, we'd just see him in the locker room or whatever. And I, I don't remember, but I lost consciousness 
when I was showering after practice and this old guy was trying to get me up. And that was the moment of clarity for me when this, the, the irony of that, this old man is helping. I'm supposed to be in the prime of my youth, yeah, like right. off the shower floor. And there's this saying in football where it's like, are you hurt or are you injured? Because if you take yourself to the training room, you're deemed as weak. Um, and you have to kind of assess like, oh, well, all right, I have a third degree separation in my shoulder. Can I play with that? Or, you know, do I have to get it wrapped up? Do I take that? Like if you're a starter, there's no question. You just take time off. You, you milk everything you can, but if you're fighting for a spot and I walked into the training room and one of the girls that was a trainer, she was pre-med and she said, I didn't say anything. And I was thankful for that. As stupid as that sounds at the time, she's like, your lips are purple, sit down. And she went to take a pulse and I had, she couldn't get a pulse off of me. And so, um, and she's sends me to the other room. The only doctor that could actually put a needle in my arm, which is interesting. The guy just operated on my dad's shoulder about five months ago. This guy, Dr. Taboni, he's an orthopedic surgeon, the best in his field. He hasn't inserted a needle in anyone's arm in like 15 years, but he's the only person that's allowed to do it. And so he tries in one arm, the vein collapses. He tries it in the other arm. And I went through seven bags of saline solution and they ran out of bags. You're supposed to go until you have to pee. And I didn't actually yeah. pee until the next day. Um, and the trainer that had started that whole thing into action pulled me aside. She's like, I think you were about to go into cardiac arrest. And I'm mm. like, and so the next day I was sent to the hospital where they stuck a camera down my throat to see if they could figure out why I was vomiting. Um, eight years later, I knew what it was because I vomited in my sleep and woke up every August for eight years after that. <laughs> so it was a seasonal trauma um, that I eventually went to therapy and worked through and kind of associated why I was, that was happening to me. And then I was practicing the next afternoon. So I literally missed two practices and I felt bad about it. <laughs> yeah. Right. I was psychologically. And then I was just going to graduate early. You know, I was so disillusioned with giving everything because nobody knows, you know, did you ever see hoop dreams? No, I haven't. Oh man. It's so that it's uh, Oscar award-winning documentary, um, late eighties, early nineties, I think it was early nineties. Mm. And they follow these two basketball players from the inner city and how they go to these private schools to try to give them a shot at playing at the next level. And, and they go to some college that isn't a big college, but that these phenoms that they followed from when they were little to, to growing up, it was one of those long forms. And they asked one of the guys, um, I forget his last name was AG or something like that. He's like, you know, everywhere I go, people say, Hey man, when you big time, don't forget about me. When, mm -hmm. when you're in the ABA, don't forget about me. And he says, the only response that I would have was, well, if I, if I don't make it, don't forget about me. Mm. And I always had that same sensation because I actually leaned on religion. You know, there were two different factions of religious groups. I was a part of athletes in action um, and Bible study I actually leaned on scripture um, that, and, and if you look at the Proverbs and the lessons in the Bible that are universal, um, are helpful for anybody, whether you're religious or not. Um, and I'm not super religious now, but I'm spiritual, but I did draw on that. And, uh, it, it was just this element where you have everybody, you're the best athlete in your town. And yet yeah. everyone assumes if you're not playing, it's that you suck. They don't mm -hmm. understand if there's politics, they don't understand if you're injured, they don't understand, um, all the, that's why you, you see so many mental health issues. We're seeing it with, uh, the tennis player, Osaka, and we're, we're seeing yeah. it with the gymnast that pulled up, like, how could she possibly yeah. do that? I'm like, if you've never performed at a high level, um, then you don't really understand, forget about the physical and yeah. what you put yourself through, but the mental aspect of it. Um, and, and we've entered a safer space now and I'm thankful for that, but I didn't, yeah. 
you know, I wasn't aware that I was putting my long-term mental health at risk um, by pushing past these physical mental barriers. Yeah. I mean, like you mentioned, we're getting in a safer space to talk about, but I mean, still, I mean, you look at Simone Biles with the, you know what I mean? Like people were, yeah, people were furious, you know, and I'm kind of curious, like shifting from, you know, this world, like you're, you have all of this internal, you know, baggage for lack of a better word about this experience. You've been through a lot of severe trauma with it. Um, You know, uh, even more so a couple of years ago, Uh, this conversation wasn't happening, you know, like people uh, around the conversation around athletes, around sports, if someone, you know, is injured or someone starts talking about mental health or someone starts talking about getting pushed too hard, that it is what you said. It's, it's, they're a pussy and they need to suck it up. And, you know, you're, you need to go ahead and just push through it, uh, you know, play through the pain, that sort of thing. So did you have any kind of resistance, the idea of doing a documentary and getting this out in the open, knowing that that was going to be part of the conversation. Like there was going to be people saying, Oh, you know, this is why he's doing it. He's got a chip on his shoulder. There's all these pieces, or was it something that you were, you know, you were pissed enough. It didn't matter. You were going to do it one way or another. I mean, there was a lot of uh, catalysts to the film. I mean, one was, you know, I'm a screenwriter by trade and I have all these things in development hell, as we call it, that have, big names attached and they can't get made. And I was tired of waiting for a film to get made. Mm-hmm. And I had done all the research for this film. And yeah, I was kind of prepared to be maybe attacked a little bit. Yeah. You know, the one of the things that we kind of link in the film is sports is a religion, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the cathedrals are the stadiums. And I mean, you want to talk about if, if you know, like prayer, prayer in school and the Supreme Court just ruled on that. And everybody's yeah. like, yeah, we should be up. I'm like, I don't know if they were doing a Muslim prayer, people would be against that. Right. So, cause we kind of have this Christian nation. So people fight for their religion in a certain capacity and that same tenacity exists in the sports world Mm -hmm. and so when i set out to make the film the focus was really going to be on the hypocrisy of the system and really it was going to focus on money and when we went and interviewed scott ross so scott ross was a linebacker at usc he played next to junior seau Mm -hmm. he was a wrecking ball he was an all-american um he would just run to a wall he was tougher than anything and uh he played there 10 years before i before I was there, but one of my friends, my roommate knew him. And at the age of 39, he was diagnosed with dementia mm-hmm. and he couldn't work. And, uh, I always thought that that was, that was one of the catalysts. And I'm like, that's really interesting. I'd never really thought about, um, that we were putting our long-term mental health on the line by bashing our, our skulls into each other, you know, uh, 1500 times a season. Who'd and, have thought, uh, right? I mean, who'd have thought that would have <laughs> negative effects? <laughs> You know, I mean, even headbangers, people that are like metal fans can yeah. actually create <laughs> brain damage from being too mm. too much headbanging because your brain's floating in this in this liquid and it's bashing in the front of your skull. And so when the one of the first shoots that we did was we interviewed Scott Ross mm-hmm. and um, my cinematographer, my editor, who also shot on the film, um, were also my producing partners. And that's why we were able to uh, get a lot of bang for your buck. Mm-hmm. And I said on the on the on the flight back, I said, okay, we, the focus of this film is, yeah, we're going to point out the hypocrisy, but the focus is on rights, and it's the rights that are inarguable, the academic integrity, um, the, obviously the the physical and the injuries and the mental health and all of that. And we did a Kickstarter to raise the money, and to kind of put perspective, I did a documentary that was a PBS documentary. Uh, we did a feature at Universal called "Talk to Me" with Don Cheadle and Chuta Jafar and 
uh, Martin Sheen, Traji Henson. And I was a partner in the company that produced that. And we did a documentary about the real guy that Don Cheadle played and he narrated it and it was on PBS. Now the budget for that documentary was like $150,000 and we shot five days in one city because uh, post-production is expensive. It just is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it sucks. And uh, we actually had the editor from Hoop Dreams on that and ended up firing him because he was kind of crazy. He was going through his own life crisis. Um, and then this film, we I raised... You know, when you do a Kickstarter, you really put a number out there that you think you can raise. And so I put 30,000 out there and uh, I'm like, oh, if, if just every one of my Facebook friends puts in $20, you know, yeah. <laughs> it was like, and the reality is, is if you ever take a risk in your life in any way, in a very public way, whether it's starting a business or a film, uh, there's a lot of people in your life that are secretly rooting against you yep. because uh, your success then undermines the route that they potentially took where they didn't take risks um, yeah. and your failure affirms that they made the right decision to not take those risks. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a very human psychological thing. We've all done it a little bit, uh, <laughs> you know, like I don't want so-and-so to whatever. Cause then things he's better than me or whatever that is. Yeah. And I raised $3,000 in the first five days and then nothing for 10 days. Mm. And uh, a good friend of mine was like the MC at like, the pep rallies at USC and was really tight with Matt Barkley. Uh, who was the quarterback at USC at the time and was, you know, the big man on campus. And he got him to do a tweet. And the tweet was something very innocuous. It was like, um, this documentary thinks college athletes deserve more rights. What do you think? Now mm -hmm. he didn't say what he thought. <laughs> it was very ambiguous. Like, and the next day, like 20 publications popped up and were like, Matt Barkley thinks players should be paid, which was controversial in like 2013 when we yeah. started raising the money. And when the film came out, it was less controversial. And then now, even now, now it's mainstream, right? Mm -hmm. So, but that wasn't what Matt Barkley said, but that was the spin. And that's what the sports kind of took off with it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the film really, there was an evolution. And when we made the film and, you know, kind of a spoiler alert, um, you know, Scott Ross uh, died while we were making the film. Yeah. Um, and you know, some people will say it's related to alcoholism. We're not sure if it was that his body gave out or if it was an actual suicide. Um, it's one of the hard things to, it's probably the hardest thing I've ever had to deal with, um, in any profession because I mean, there were a lot of dark days with Scott and yeah. he would call me in the middle of the night, three in the morning. And he'd say, if the handle on this bottle was a trigger, I'd pull it. Hmm. And I'd stay up with him until my wife was getting up for work around six. And she's like, what are you doing? I'm trying to keep Scott from killing himself, you know? And, yeah. um, you know, the, the demons and the darkness that comes with um, what happens with these athletes that are very prideful in nature to admit that there's a mental health issue um, with depression and anxiety uh, is difficult. Yeah. Uh, and so they, they self-medicate. And some of them overdose in the process of that. And it's deemed that they were an alcoholic or, or something along those lines. Uh, yeah. And I've self-medicated uh, before. So I, I know what that is. So I had to kind of come to terms with, <clears throat> do I want to talk about my own mental health issues in the film? And I, and I do. So I have a condition called panic disorder. Um, and it sounds like, oh, I, when things are tough, I might panic. And I hate the name of it because it's such yeah. a misnomer. And what it is, is it's an ancient part of the, it's the part of the brain that exists for when we used to be food for other animals Yeah, and they call it fight or flight, but it's really fight, flight, or freeze. And, um, it's like a bad trip. If anyone's ever taken a hallucinogenic or, uh, an edible, I'm just going to take an edible. And then they freak out like you're, and you can't control your mind racing. Um, it's very uncomfortable. 
Um, and I have a lot of mental tools to stave it off. But what happens is all it's not these concussions, it's these subconcussive blows. Players are doing 800 to 1500 hits of these subconcussive blows per season. So you get somebody that's playing a pop Warner, um, which I didn't really do. Um, and then high school and then college and sometimes the pros, you're talking tens of thousands of these hits and your brain cells don't just die to become traumatized. And then about 13, 15 years later, they harden to what's called this tau protein. And so right now we can only diagnose chronic traumatic encephalopathy somebody's dead. And when they cut open their brain, in fact, I have a card in my wallet. I'm the 91st person to pledge their brain for donation. And on the back of the card, it tells them to harvest my brain and my, and my stem cell uh, and the stem of my brain so that they can study it after my death and see if I had um, what stage of CT I, I have or had or mm-hmm. whatever that ends up being. And so it was hard to decide to, because you said, we kind of weren't in this space of mental health. Um, I felt like I had to do it for Scott Ross because you know, there's guilt in knowing that his death elevates the film. Yeah. Uh, and I couldn't ask him to give me his warts and all and for me to not do the same. And I had to tell my dad and my parents before they watched it about my condition. Cause I didn't want them to be surprised about it. And even then that was, you know, my dad would I'd talk to him on the phone. He'd be like, Hey Bob. And I'm like, look, dad, I'm not crazy. You got to stop talking to me like I'm crazy. It's something that happens to me. This isn't me. And I know that athletes are out there struggling. I've had a dozen teammates and hundreds of athletes from different sports that weren't my teammates that have sent me a note, an email, uh, called me or reached out and said, I have what you have. And if I can maybe help one person take the steps for them to better themselves or just really admit that they're struggling with that, then it's worth it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Scott, Scott's interviews in, in the documentary are, are heavy. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, from the first frame of him talking, I mean, it's, you can see how this has affected him. And I'm, I'm curious from the filmmaking standpoint, like, was there, a, was there a inkling in your mind of like, do we keep doing this? Do we still make this, you know, like, describe for me that kind of feeling in production side going like, do we make this film? Because like you said, you know, I I feel very similarly when working, I I do a lot of work around clergy abuse, you know, and like there is this line Mm. of I'm creating content around this subject that these horrific stories are going to be what brings more attention to this subject. But also there's this responsibility of like, I don't want to exploit this person's story, you know, like there's this very fine line that you're always walking. It's this tightrope, you know, it, what was the conversation on the production side kind of during that time? I mean, that's a, that's a really great question. I think somebody like you that has the backdrop and that have done those hard stories um, completely understands that. And it's really conflicting. Um, the way that I sleep at night is I've actually never made money from this film. <laughs> Uh, I financed post-production myself and I've basically made my money back uh, and I've donated to a lot of uh, nonprofits and I, I won't, some, I, I won't yeah. mention all the things that I've done with some of the money because it's, it's private um, in terms of who we've helped with it. But um, I, I did talk with Scott's family yeah. and um, I got to meet him, meet them at the funeral. And um, you know, you got to understand that they, they thought that Scott was making this up because that he was going to be in this movie and all this, because Scott would sometimes say a lot of things um, and he could have good days and bad days. And the interview that you saw with Scott in the film was a fascinating day. We were supposed to meet him at eight at this IHOP and we were going to have breakfast and then go do a shoot. And I didn't even know where we were going to shoot. And we found this park and 
I mean, sometimes you're just on the fly and the composite of that shot's really interesting because there's like this playground that's empty in the backdrop mm-hmm. and there's definitely metaphorical elements to it. Uh, and Scott, it's as if like <laughs> whatever higher power you want to, it's like he got handed his brain back for an hour and a half yeah. uh, in that interview. And then with his doctor and we dropped him off at a motel six and he couldn't walk barely. And you would have thought that he was like chugging vodka or something in the bathroom, but I was with him the whole time. Um, he actually never went to the bathroom and he was spent. And that's what happens with people that have brain injuries is, is they, they're spent and they can't, they can barely do anything. That's why they can't work full days. But in any conversation that I had had with Scott in, in the, in the five, six years, I was close to him in that process. Um, that day it was, there was a, kismet there was an element to it and getting his family's blessing was really important yeah. for me and you know it was really interesting when i was when we shifted and made the film there were really three some somebody i remember in early screening was like well you know what your problem is you got three different movies here you've got one about the concussions and one about the academics and one about the money and oh, i'm like yeah i'm hyper aware of that uh <laughs> i wish i could sell three different movies uh but unfortunately i need to make this one movie and you get a lot of notes um, from outside people that, um, and part of any kind of auteur is knowing what note to take, right? Mm-hmm. And there's good notes and there's bad notes. And there was a lot of bad notes, but somebody that gave me a really good note, um, it's a friend of mine named Sarah Ganim, and she actually won the Pulitzer for breaking the, the Penn State scandal um, with, the, with the rape um, that took place at Penn State. And I was doing a screening at the the, the NFL players union in DC. And we were there to lobby against um, them trying to get exemption the way that baseball has and things like that. And we did a screening on the way back. I, I met with her uh, and I had a drink and she only had one note. And she's like, cause Scott was in the third act. Mm-hmm. She's like, Scott's the threat of the movie. He needs to be in the front of the movie. And if anyone listening has ever edited a film, and there's tens of thousands of edits, right? And oh. and I'm sitting there and I'm processing. And I had to order another drink because this was like, oh my god, damn it, that's such a good note. It's a it's such a salient thread that pulls mm-hmm. all these elements together. And I just knew how much work it was going to take <laughs> to actually implement that note. Yeah. And and I forgot that while we were up north interviewing, actually, the wrestler from Minnesota and the sports economist up north, we we visited Scott. He was an hour away. And we visited him with his girlfriend. I forgot, oh, my God, we had that footage. And we were able to put that in the middle. And we moved his interview up. And then, you know, all the elements and the pieces came together. But it's it wasn't an easy note by any means. Yeah. Um, but, but we were – I was trying to get USC to actually pass um, – I, I spent a year creating a health plan that would cover every athlete in the school, including walk-ons and every sport for the injuries they sustained in their sport that year. So that like, I've had one of my knees redone. I'll eventually have to have one of my other knees uh, redone and eventually probably replacement and all that. But imagine you had a knee injury and you needed help 20, 30, 40 years down the line that you're covered for the injury in that sport for the next 60 years. And by a fluke, I had a friend that was, created health plans like this. <laughs> so, uh, and we couldn't get uh, an insurance company to adopt it without having the exclusion for head injuries because they didn't know the sucking cost of what that would be in the long run. But I was trying to get USC to be the hero of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> which you can look at the irony of that too, right? Yeah. And, uh, it's not how it turned out. <laughs> it's not, you know, I mean, I don't think they look bad. I mean, no. I, Trojans have been very supportive of the film. Yeah. Uh, North Carolina looks bad. 
Um, and Oklahoma looks bad. Um, but we also shine a bright on some schools that are doing the right thing too. But I tried to, so I met with uh, everyone, but except for the athletic director, um, who's Pat Hayden at the time. And, um, you know, I was talking about Scott and they said, well, does Scott need our help right now? I was like, yeah, well, he can't, he can't pay the co-pays to get his psychiatrist um, sessions. So he can't even get his medication. So when he's off his meds, he's uneven. Um, and they put all these hurdles in front of me. And one of the guys there, I don't see his name, but he's one of these, you know, people that work in the marketing department, whatever he's in the front office. Uh, he was actually supposedly got admonished for the scandal for the varsity blues thing. And he grabbed his knee and he said, well, I hurt my knee in high school. Does that mean that my high school should pay for my knee? And I said, well, I, if your high school made more than a hundred million dollars a year, probably be the right thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, and I showed them a clip and they're like, you're trying to get rid of sports. And I'm like, you know, and that was another thing to grapple with. There was a lot of just, you know, how do you grapple with the fact that I am very proud of being a Trojan, what I did as an athlete, but yet I'm trying to do this thing that makes schools look bad. And it's the roar from Berkeley in the film. She's, she said, well, look, this is what we do with our friendships and our family and our loved ones and things that we care about is we push them to be better. I'm like, oh my God, that's like. Yeah. best response because i i just had all this different mixed emotions about making this film yeah. and i tried to get that mental uh i tried to get that 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 um you know policy passed and they said i gotta go through um you know this department and then i gotta go through football and then the school and then the conference they put all these obstacles in front of me and i said okay well put me in front of the first guy and then three weeks later scott died and i was pissed off and i didn't yeah. want to go out of my way to make them be there. And the, yeah, UCLA, I mean, Ed O'Bannon and Ramogi Huma. Ramogi Huma is the voice of the movement. If you look yeah. at everything that's pushed forward, it's been through a very kind, soft-spoken, selfless person. I'm a, the film is a part of the zeitgeist and it, and it did play a role in all the things that kind of came into fruition this last year. But I mean, he's the leader of the pack. Yeah. Him and Kessler, there's and, and Ed O'Bannon, there's a few people that are really why college athletes now have more benefits. And oh. you know, I was just a part of the team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's such a cool role though. Like I, I think about that all the time, you know, in in again, I mean the the parallel I think of of kind of what I'm doing is is there's people that have been doing this for so much longer or have been doing this in their way, you know, and it's so cool. Like when you have an ability to create a piece of content or a piece of art or a film or a documentary or a podcast or a book, whatever that is to help platform them to do more of what they're doing. That's a really cool position to be in. And I, I'm kind of curious before transitioning out of this, like you mentioned a little bit of, you know, your film playing a big role in exposing this stuff and, and, you know, pushing the lever a little bit on this, what was the response to the film? You know, when it came out, you know, did it exceed your expectations and how much attention it got? Did you think it would drop and, you know, maybe a few people who were friends and family would see it? Um, or did you anticipate how much of an impact it would have? Yeah, distribution is one of those hard things um in any for any filmmaker because you could just be making a really expensive home movie right yeah <laughs> uh, in fact that there was a guy that came in and put the last bit of money in that allowed us to you know i woke up one day and i had the kickstarter money and it was in there and uh i offered him a producer role because he he, he believed in us in such a big way and not like you know i was like getting an exec or co-producer or something and he's like no no that's okay and i remember showing him 
you know, a, a near finished version of the film. And he's like, this is a real movie. I'm like, what the fuck did you think I was making? <laughs> like, right. And I, and I don't know whether to be, you know, like <laughs> proud of that. Thank comment. you. <laughs> uh, I don't yeah. know. Uh, and, and I know he had a little, like, you know, he wished he would have been given a credit. I actually offered Sarah Ganim a credit because mm-hmm. she played such a pivotal role in with the film. And, and she, she, didn't think she could because of her role at CNN. And yeah, she had regrets about the decision. Um, she's gone on to be a great filmmaker too. But when, when it came out, we we were really close to getting some big festivals. Um, you know, we had the head of Toronto Festival actually watched it. I had a connection to him. He didn't think that um, the, the, I always thought the ugly American like part of the documentary had an international play and they only do things that have international plays. Sundance, I don't know if we were in the wheelhouse. You don't know who's watching your film and, you know, we didn't have an agent at the time. And so I don't know. We got really close with HBO, um, really close. And they said it was somewhat derivative to their real sports. And what sucked about that was there was another documentary called Student Athlete that LeBron James produced that is basically. Who? And I got to say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. And and so uh, when we did a screening, actually, um you know, some people flew out to do a screening and, you know, I would never taken payment for doing screenings or anything like that. And there was another film crew there and it was a female director. And, um, I, I got a lot of people when that HBO documentary came out that like, dude, you're in the movie. And I'm like, Oh God. Now I signed a release that said, you can use my image in your documentary. Mm -hmm. But I said, you got to name the film in my name when you put it in there. Yeah. And I literally put that into the thing. And, um, and I'm like, I'm not jealous. I mean, look at how many environmental documentaries are out there. You know, we've got yeah. like 80 iceberg movies, right. About the melted snow or whatever. I'm like, there can be more than one. There's really been three. Um, mm. you know, there's another one called schooled. There was ours schooled came out right when we were doing it. They really focused on money and hypocrisy. Ours covered all the issues. And then student athlete was a little bit more verite, a little bit more fly on the wall. They like, which I thought was really cool. Um, an aspect of the film and their, uh, their score was really dope. The opening slow-mo that they did in this basketball thing was really dope. Uh, but they saw our movie <laughs> while they were starting to make it. And yeah, there was a lot of things that I don't know. <laughs> it would have been in their movie if they hadn't watched it. Uh, and, and you get a little bit bitter because I'm in the movie, but they are literally filming a radio interview with a lot of people that are proponents for college athletes rights on this radio interview and they they show everybody snippets and everybody's name but the interview it's all about the film that i just made and yet i'm in the i'm in the movie i'm in the scene but they don't even put my name or anything i'm just somebody that happens to be at this radio interview of these people are right so i always thought that was pretty bullshit um you know as a filmmaker because i embraced i'm like no anything that's helping college athletes rights but i'm like oh wow you're not even gonna do that so when it came out we we got quality distribution like we were the number one documentary on itunes for a couple of months which was really cool um and and yeah i mean we got a lot of praise for it which was great i mean that that we received that uh but i always want more you know anytime you make a film you want as many people to see it as possible and so it was really a streaming distribution we never had theatrical we didn't have a big cable deal or anything like that. So it was all kind of a trickle in. Um, I mean, I was happy because the money, you know, that my partners were able to make, cause I didn't pay my editor or my cinematographer because they were on the back end. And luckily, you know, they made enough money that was more than I would have paid them if I had paid them up front. So they kept those friendships intact. Uh, right. But yeah, I was at the end of the day, really proud. And, and when we had a bill in California, um, so I'm on the overhead committee oversight committee for, um, the national collegiate players association, which helps create all these bills. And so the bill in California 
and it's very bipartisan. It's not a, you know, people are like, oh, Newsom signed that. And it's like, actually, it was a Republican uh, assemblyman that, and, a, and, a, and, a, and assemblywoman. It was very, everybody agreed. It's the part of the Venn diagram everybody agrees with, which is rights. And um, we, I cut a five-minute snippet related to the NIL, the name, image, and likeness part um, that draws parallels to what happened with Olympics and things like that, the history of amateurism in general. Yeah, that's and, a great, yeah. Probably my favorite section of the doc was that breakdown, yeah. I always, you know, and, and so then that, that we utilize that clip to pass in California. And if you look at how you change the system, you know, the, it's not in the film, but the sports economist broke it down. He's like, well, you know, the athletes could wake up and realize they're being taken advantage of, but the reality is the revolving door and that probably won't happen. Uh, if they just decided to not show up for the national championship, like the national champion movie that just came out or what almost happened with uh, the big five in Michigan in 1990, 1991, it almost happened. Uh, but there's litigation, right? That's the slowest route. There's uh, legislation, which is something that eventually passed. Uh, the unionization of athletes, which is a school-by-school -school basis, and schools set up laws to prevent that from happening. But the fastest way is competition. And so when California passed that bill, which was going to come into effect three years from when it passed, Florida fast-tracked one that was going to like take effect the next year, and Pennsylvania, and like 12 other states. And then that's what fast-tracked it to the Supreme Court this last year. Um, and it was a unanimous ruling. It wasn't, like I said, bipartisan. It's what everybody agreed with. And yeah, I'm I'm not single-handedly. No, I'm a part of the zeitgeist, and no. um, and I'm very close with Ramogi, who I do consider to be kind of the, the godfather of the movement, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's one of those things. You, whenever you 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 make a film, any piece of art, you know, there's two ways to make a legacy in your life, right? And one is to is your children. And when you have children that you're passing on and it's built into our DNA to procreate and there's this little, your little mini avatars running around and it's a slice of you. And the other is to create a piece of art that hopefully can stand the test of time. Um, and I feel like with the business amateurs, we did that not in a massive way where everyone's heard about the film, but enough to where we made an impact. You set out to, you don't make documentaries usually to make a lot of money. You make them to make a difference. Well, with that in mind, um, I definitely want to ask you a couple uh, practical questions here, but um, you mentioned you have some screenplays in development hell, uh, which is, <laughs> which is always fun. Um, what do you see next for you? Do you, do you see more uh, just on the screenwriting side? Are you wanting, do you have any other causes or documentaries that are swirling around? I'm sure you've got uh, like most of us out there, you probably got like 15 to 20 every few seconds that are, you know, small starts of ideas, but do you have a, a dream project or something that you're hoping you can get off the ground soon? Yeah, I mean, I've spent a lot of um, energy and time and money actually last couple of years launching a whiskey subscription, which which kind of correlates with the business of amateurs in that um, we're supporting American craft distillers. So we're sticking up for the little guy and we're disrupting distribution so that these guys aren't just rock stars at 50 miles, that they're national. So Blind Barrels is a, basically it's a whiskey kit that people get that are blind tasting samples that they'd never be able to buy or try. And if you want to buy a bottle, it's the same price as if you're at the distillery. So we're, I've kind of transferred the same idea now into uh distillers. So during quarantine, I kind of fell in love with the blind tasting thing. So that's taking a lot of energy. I mean, what's great about any kind of startup like that is I get to do still production, you know? So we do, uh, you know, did a masterclass on tasting whiskey. Um, you know, we shot, I'm shooting little documentaries now about these distillers. September box. We're, <laughs> we're visiting all of them and we're saying, Hey, use all of our footage. Um, so I would get to take, or just doing marketing spots. Um, I had a show I, I, I couldn't sell where it was like prank anchors, but with celebrity impressionists. Hmm. Um, and it was great. These were 
just amazing. When people think they're talking to Matthew McConaughey, you can get away with a lot. Or Morgan right. Freeman. Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll have to send you uh, the audio of it because it's just great. I, so I utilized the guy that that did those voice impressions for some um, marketing spots that were trickling out. Yeah. And so we get to still be creative and all that. But yeah, I, I do have a lot of different... I tried to make a sequel to this documentary hmm. and it was going to be called The Last Plantation. And, you know, we were talking kind of about the white savior thing. I'm like, oh, do I want to be the white guy that made the film about yeah. race? And, <laughs> right. You know, and yeah. I mean, we almost got off the ground and it's the timing would have been really great with what was happening the last few yeah, years. For sure. Um, but we just couldn't get it. And I couldn't, you know, put that on my wife again to take this risk because she's not a risk taker. Um, to then let's throw our money into this other thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, now I can get access to everybody. I was just cold calling everybody, getting lucky, getting the top brain doctors that were dissecting. I was just getting lucky yeah. in the first documentary that people responded to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have a couple screenplays that I think are pretty, you know, that have won some awards and contests that are optioned right now that, um, you know, I always have a pilot that gets turned down every year. <laughs> I had one with Blake Griffin who has a, mm production company with uh, Ryan Khalil, who's the center for the Panthers for a number of years. And um, so, you know, TV, you get your heart broken quickly and it yeah. just dies. And there's so many ways that, I mean, I had, you know, I've been really close in TV a bunch of times and in film, what happens is nothing ever dies. It's just on life support. Yeah. And <laughs> it could take, right. you know, it could take 20 years for a film to get made and you don't know why the, the film talked to me that I mentioned earlier um, it was a $17 million movie. It was distributed by Focus Features, the specialty arm out of Universal. Um, it was really the first black art house film that was made. It was before mm -hmm. Precious, um, which really broke the mold because it, it was really well known. And this guy, Sidney Kimball, uh, who's, who's made a bunch of films independently, but he was really a fashion mogul billionaire that, you know, he, he bought Kate Spade and Jones in New York and mm -hmm. uh, decided he wanted to dabble in filmmaking with some of his rich buddies. And I'm like, why did this old white guy make this film and one of the elements that talked to me is there's a passage of time that they used it uh the tonight show show a passage of time and eventually in the third act they arrived at the tonight show and two months before the movie came out sydney kimmel bought johnny carson's house and i went oh, okay so <laughs> that movie got made because this guy was a johnny carson fan like that's yeah. literally the only reason that movie got made and so i'm always trying to think of leverage Mm -hmm. um, so I, I've written a lot of stuff that built around true stories. Um, there's one that just should get made. We almost got Clint Eastwood to make it. And right now, Antoine Fuqua, the guy that did training day and, um, just an amazing filmmaker. Um, it's about, you know, um, a guy that walks into Wells Fargo bank in the late seventies with the $50,000 check made out to Muhammad Ali and the bank manager, who was also a black guy said, well, I can't cash this check. You're not Muhammad Ali. And the next day he comes in with Muhammad Ali. Hmm. and start the seduction and this is when computers were kind of new in banks and he knew how to kite accounts and over you know a few years they embezzled 87 million dollars and put on the biggest boxing fights in the late 70s Jeez. and early 80s one of these all under the, the the guise of muhammad ali's professional sports his nonprofit, and muhammad hmm. ali didn't even know what was going on and it's one of these great true stories that people don't know about and the script is just fantastic not just because i wrote it i was one of the writers on it but um but it's a hard movie to get made it's a period piece right i mean yeah. you know it's, it's a lot of budget for it's that, like yeah. how we market it and you know yeah. big names and there's like four people that can get it financed and if they don't read it i mean so there, there's so much that goes in trying to get these films made and what's hard is any filmmaker or any artist of, of any type is 
you know, I, I have a, you know, a, f- a family member that always like a few years after something comes out, it's like, so are you hanging up, you hanging up your hat on making movies now? And I'm like, dude, I got to develop 50 things just to make that one thing. Yeah. And, and, and why anything gets made or not business of amateurs was the only one that, you know, you write, you produce, direct it, like financed it. Everything was, you take that risk, build into fruition. And then it could, it might not have gotten distribution. You know, I mean, we use 270 clips from movies and photos, and I didn't buy the rights to any of that stuff. Um, they were all under fair use. And when you're at the tail end of making a film, what happens is there's, you have to get this E&O insurance. It stands for errors and omission. And uh, I don't know if you've ever gone through this process, but there's like seven companies out there that if you don't get this E&O insurance, you literally can't get distribution. And yeah. so we're making this distribution deal and we're at the final stage and it's like three days before my daughter's, my first child's being born. And I'm just, <laughs> my wife woke up middle of the night because I'm just going, <sighs> like, like mini panic attacks. Like, yeah. like the only time I've had like external stress, like panic mm-hmm. attacks um, in my life. Because th- four of the companies came back and they're like, this is, too risky of a film we won't ensure yeah. this and like two of them came back and they said well we want like eight times what it was in the budget of what it should cost but we would exclude if a coach sues you which the distribution company wouldn't do it and one company came back for right on budget and insured it and i hmm. asked the broker i'm like do you think do you think they didn't watch the movie she's like i don't think they watched the movie send them a check <laughs> so it was one of these like last minute and i mean to even to just get a clearance person each item is usually anywhere from you know 100 to 250 dollars to clear per item um and this guy don gordon who you know did clearance for the concussion movie where they use real nfl yeah. films i mean he's the, the the main dude and one of my other friends and clients said hey send it to him he might be able to help you and he cleared every item in the film with a fair use letter for a total of 500 dollars and um so he was an angel on our shoulder at the tail end of it um and so yes i'm still i have a lot of things that i'd love to get made uh and i'm constantly tweaking and working on it obviously i'm focusing on blind barrels and the whiskey industry a lot but i i do get script gigs you know because i have pieces out there that people have read and then they want me to come in and try to fix something and yeah you do your best to try to fix a script, but sometimes you're like, oh, this will never get made. But hey, you know, if they yeah. like what I did, they might hire me for something that might be right. able to get made, you know? For sure. So I get three or four like writing gigs a year, which is nice. Gotcha. You know? So gotcha. I'm always on life support, right? Right. right. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, transitioning here into uh, kind of a random round, I want to ask a question. It's in t- it's kind of in tandem with what I, what I just kind of discussed, but I ask everybody that comes on, you know, because there's a lot of people that listen to this that are aspiring filmmakers or people that are, you know, stepping their foot into this world. Um, so I'm going to kind of flip this question. I usually ask, what's the number one piece of advice you'd give to an aspiring filmmaker? Uh, but I'm going to I'm going to pivot it a little bit and just ask if you were to make another documentary right now, what's the biggest mistake you would avoid going into it? Wow. Um I mean, having made two different documentaries that one was a bio doc and you know how it ends. If you want to mess with somebody that's not making a bio doc and, and make sure that they don't sleep for a couple of weeks, ask them how the movie ends. Okay. Uh, And you see it. I noticed it. Like, I don't know if you saw the series, uh, keep sweet. Uh, The new series is about the, the, 
you know, Latter-day Saint fundamentalists. Mm. Um, and it was all about telling women, you got to keep sweet so you can let us rape you. And it's like really weird and out there. And I just love watching it. But at the end of the movie, and I'm like, oh, God, this was your classic. Like, I don't know how the movie's going to end. Yeah. Um, I, I think <laughs> kind of answer your questions. I feel like the one mistake that I wish I would have done more in the film, you know, the film starts with us coming out of the, the tunnel. And the closing of the film is me going back into the tunnel. And the, the voiceover um, is basically saying as athletes, we need to fight on. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this was a battle I had with the editor that I wish I would have taken more. And we had voiceover. We were going to have in the intro about acclimating to being a college athlete. And, you know, there's this mantra at USC called fight on. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, and it's the fans saying, the players saying it's fight on. You see another Trojan, you throw the V up and you say fight on. And I don't think it's obvious to the viewer that I'm using the words. I'm basically doing what I was taught as a student athlete. I'm standing up for myself and I'm fighting on and that. I don't think that that's obvious to the viewer. I think it's very subtle. Um, so I wish I made that a little bit more obvious. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, I would say if anybody that's going out there, one of the things that, that, and you know, this better than most people that I wasn't mentally prepared for um, until it happened was there's um you know, as a filmmaker, you're thinking about composite, you're thinking about shots. And, you you know, I remember the first interview I did in the documentary, I had a list of questions and I just went right mm -hmm. down them. But the reality is there's an evolution that yep. takes place in any conversation. And to then just go to the next question, um, like the basketball player in the documentary, I mean, I, I always start with kind of a warm up question to acclimate them to the cameras and the lights. And I'm like, oh, so did you always play sports growing up? And he just started crying. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I was you know, I was like, Oh, I got to get to page three. <laughs> yeah. Right? Let's go. Yeah. But there's a taking on the journalist part of making a documentary was something that I hadn't fully accounted for um, that, you know, we talked to a widow whose husband died of LS and we're sitting in the living room where they took him off life support. And she's talking about it for the first time. And we were all crying. Oh, like, like really hard um, because it was so real and it was raw. And the father was over in the kitchen to the left of me and he's sobbing. And um, I don't think I, I had fully taken into account that I was going to be going to those places. And I know that you go to those places with people in, in, in some of the work that you do. And I'm not saying that you can mentally prepare for it, but try to think beyond the budget and the mm -hmm. composite. And when you're making anything that has human elements and this was something that i learned but along along the way that there was that ebb and flow um and they were really difficult shoots because you're you're playing with with people's lives you're talking about their story yeah. and um yeah there's whether it's scott's story or whether it's uh the widow you know there there's a responsibility that comes with that yeah. so um and and when you take this on oh we all want to make a movie and it's hard to raise the money and it's hard to do all these things and editing and yeah everything's hard okay but i think that was one of the things that i had i i then <laughs> did all right when it happened but um and i don't know if that answers your question i'm kind of answering different questions but <laughs> yeah no it's it's uh there's certain things that come with telling these stories that you can't put on a spreadsheet you know like there's that business side where it's like this is going to cost us this much, or, or if we're going to set up a camera, what's in frame, what's not. And it is, it's true. Like, I mean, I had, uh, you know, get, getting into the stuff that I was doing, like I would do when I started, I was like, 
I was just thinking, these are the list of people I need to release this many episodes. Like that was the thought. And then, you know, then in the beginning, it was like I scheduled and I would do, okay, I'll do four interviews today. Great. You know, I'll do four interviews tomorrow. I'll do four interviews the next day. Great. I'll just schedule them whenever they can schedule them. You know, and then you're four months in and you're pulling over in a parking lot and just breaking down crying because you're like, all this stuff that I thought I was just like, you know, and it is, I think there is, I don't know if you relate to this, but you know, I, the first, you know, documentary project I've worked on, we're in India and these very poor villages filming these horrific conditions and hearing, you know, hearing stories about abuse from this, you know, woman, you're sitting there and you're looking through a lens and you're making sure everything looks okay. You're checking the sound. It's three days later that you're like, oh my God, like that was that was intense. Like I'm not separated by a lens anymore. You know, there's this other element to it. That's, that's really heavy. Um, so yeah, I definitely, definitely get, get what you mean by that. Yeah. We had a little of that in DC. We were making a uh, gesture color. That's also on Amazon prime. Um, and it's this great, a reverend guy, PD green. He just jumps off the camera. We got his footage, but we were going to the PD green center and PD green is in, it's in ward nine in Washington, DC in like the Anacostia projects. And I thought I was in like, like a Paul Verhoeven movie, like this dystopian, like, I swear to God, there was like a, like a a graffiti, like burned down cop car that hadn't been removed. Like, like I was in Detroit Robocop or something like weird. And there was these, these, these little kids running the gas station. You had to pay them to like put gas in the car, like Mm -hmm. seven-year-olds, like, like running. It was like, it was, and we're just sitting there and where are we? Yeah, We are not in, and we're probably the only, you know, white people there. And I, you know, been in, you know, the LA part of, um, you know, USC is kind of right in that Crenshaw element. It's not like I've never been in an area where I'm one of the only white people, but this was a totally different thing. And, um, like, I mean, we were at the, the Popeye's there and there was like three levels of plexiglass. Like, I'm like, yeah. I don't know what they're trying to stop here. And it's like it a was, bank. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a different element. So I've, I also, one of the things I think in making the documentary that most people don't realize is, you know, what's somebody sees that writing credit, um, in a documentary, like, Oh, so most people think that you go out and you interview somebody and then the editor takes all that footage and just turns it into the movie. And it's the writing. That's one of the hardest part because you, you have transcripts for every interview, right? There's a time code. So the editor can find that the editor's job is really energy and flow and cutting from one shot to another, make it look seamless. Um, we had one guy in our interviews who said, um, like literally every third word, it was, um, um, and it was like, Oh God. And that was really hard to edit, but it looked seamless. And the editor crushed it for that. But imagine you have, like in our case, we had over 3,000 pages of transcripts yeah. from over a couple hundred hours of interviews. And you've got to take, imagine you have a book that's 3,000 pages, right? Um, like James Missioner, like Centennial or something. And every sentence is out of order. And then yeah. you need to build like a 35-page script from all of those out-of-order sentences because um, then that, that's what gets pulled together and makes the movie. And, and that is a very arduous process. And right. also there's... A lot of right answers to how you want to yeah. edit that. Do you start at the end and then work backwards? And do you, mm-hmm. what do you, you know, there's so many right ways to do it. And those are difficult decisions to always make in the process. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, pivoting, well, we'll pivot to a chair. This conversation, I think we've gotten, uh, we've gotten pretty heavy. So I'm going to, I'm going to steer us into, uh, into some of our lighter questions in the, in the random round here. Uh, first, uh, first one I want to ask is, um, what is a movie that people would be surprised to know that you enjoy? 
Wow. What's a movie that I don't, you know, that's a tough question. I can't honestly think of something right off the bat. Like there's, I don't know. So I've, I've, I've seen the mist many times. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever seen the mist. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like Frank Darabont and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's a Stephen King thing and it's so dark in the way that it ends and everything. And I like, I like really dark movies. You know, I love seven. I love it when there's twists at the end. Um, But yeah, I like, I like a couple campy. So I, what, what, to answer your question, my wife will sometimes watch really bad horror films and I'll watch them with her. Okay. Uh, and, and I mean, just like, Oh God, the ending is the ending that you expect. It's the only guy yeah. that was a suspect and it is that guy. Um, but then there's, there's sometimes like I watch really weird, like sometimes romantic comedy stuff. Um, uh, I'd say my, my, if I were to say it's more in TV, like I'll watch America's got talent and cry in my living room at 11 o'clock at night by myself, you know, <laughs> like, right. I'm like this guy's dreams come true. <laughs> so, like that's, I'd say. Right where it's a little bit um but yeah i mean i'm i'm very open to um, films and genres and i love a good romantic comedy you know like i like i'll cry during 50 first dates twice yeah (laughs) when she finds out her condition the first time and i think the score i'm a sucker for a good score or Mm. and then the feel the sad part and then the feel good when she's on the butt learning about her child like i like i cry during movies like that all the time yeah um so I don't know if that answers the question. But. Yeah, no, no, definitely. <laughs> no, it's a question I was like asking, because there's people who, you know, like you come from like this athletic background, you the mention all these sports movies, and then it's like, I love watching like a romantic comedy, you know, like I love getting answers like that. You know, I interviewed a horror director and he's like, oh, defending your life, Albert Brooks comedy oh, with Meryl Streep, it. you know, like, so I like, I'm always curious to know what people are going to say um, on a follow-up to that. What do you think is the best decade of film history? This is the conversation that always makes people stomach twist and knots. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm a sucker for the eighties, hmm. you know. I mean, every John Hughes movie, Pretty in Pink, Sixteen Candles, Breakfast Club. It's nostalgic, you know, from my standpoint. Have you seen Three um, O'clock High? Of course, okay. dude. Oh my god, dude. Awesome. Like the op- <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I, I love just, I mean, the, the thing, the 80s, like like Secret of My Success, there's always like an opening song that has mm-hmm. the title in the movie. Secret of My Success is I'm living. And, and so every Michael J. Fox movie, 3 o'clock high, there's this great scene in 3 o'clock high where he goes out to his car. And, and, and I mean, everything about that, Betty, Buddy Ravel, who was also the bad guy in Kindergarten Cop. I mean, like everything about that movie is phenomenal. The filmmaking of that is phenomenal. The, the looking at the clock, the quick shots, you know, and, and so he goes out to his car and there's a knife with the note on his yeah. car, right? <laughs> and he goes and the security guards, this asshole that then gets like, you know, punched, by, knocked out by Buddy Ravel, like in the third act. And and he goes to like show the security guard the note, like, look, there's a note on my car. And he just takes it and he just throws it. And, and there's this great shot of it just hitting the wind and the wind going, and it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. you're on you're on your own, buddy. Like, yeah, <laughs> like, there's no getting out of this for you. And yeah. I love three o'clock. I've seen that movie. And it's funny, sometimes you go back and you watch a movie, mm-hmm. um, and it it your memory of it's different, you know, like you it's same thing with like video games you play an old video game and you remembered it being so much everything because your imagination of whatever that was 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I, it's one thing that my wife and I can always agree on is that we can always watch some movie from the eighties and whether it's, you know, 1981, it's the thing, it's a John Carpenter movie, yeah. you know, ghostbusters. I mean, so many tropes were built up from that era mm-hmm. that are, that still just hold true and yeah. still keep the glue of a movie together. Um, you know, like you ever watched that Netflix series, like, um, you know, movies that made us, they were talking about pretty one, which I think was like 1991. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was an eighties movie, but like Gary Marshall, like turned this dark movie about a prostitute that originally was like drugs. And the, the movie's called 3000. And the final scene is like Richard Gere character, like thrown around the street and like throwing $3,000 at her. And the, the magic of that movie was all of these improvised elements that happened on set. It becomes um, this beautiful thing. You know, we, we, we came to <laughs> Vegas for the first time. Uh, and we live here now, but my, my wife and I, when we, when I first came with her, we got upgraded. It was like, a it was just weird. We got upgraded and we were stayed in like this penthouse suite. It was like, nice. it was like 150 bucks to upgrade from a basic room to that. And it had like the gym inside and the sauna and like through. Mm. And she's like, it's like pretty woman. And I was like, <laughs> it's not quite like pretty woman though. Right. Like we agree. It's not exactly like that movie. <laughs> a little bit different. Yeah. No, they're there. I, I just, I mean, even just really bad, like um, better off dead. You ever see better yeah. off dead? I mean, yeah. I've seen, I've seen better. Off, I've probably seen half baked and better off dead more than any other In, movie that I've ever interviewing, like, just seen. Uh, I interviewed Diane Franklin uh, a while back and that was like one of the biggest, like, Oh my God. Like, because better off dead was, was huge. I mean, you got Bill and Ted's excellent venture. Like, it Amityville too, you know, it's like, oh my God, you're like, she's one of the people where it was like, oh, that's like an icon. <laughs> like that's somebody who's amazing. Yeah. I, yeah. I can watch better off dead a million times. And one, one crazy summer. Where same do you director, put right? those in the same, you, you know, Demi Moore. Um, sings a song. Don't look back. Never <laughs> look, no. Demi Moore sings in that movie which is really interesting and that's one of those movies when you watch again i remembered it as better but i still i cry like into tears uh bobcat goldwith who's going on to be a pretty good filmmaker yeah and he's he's talking to his buddy you know who was booger and uh he was also in better off dead and he was yeah. booger in revenge of the nerds and he was in ray and he's become a you know and he's talking to <laughs> scene where he's like you know, I was a little child. I was a boy. They used to pick on me. There was a, there was a kid. And they used to pick on him because he because he wanted to be like his brother, and, and he talked funny. <laughs> and Booger says, "Was that little boy you?" He goes, "No, no, but but I used to I used to beat the shit out of him. Like, Why are you so fat? Why are you so fat?" <laughs> still, He's so funny. I still though. just die at that scene every single time. But yeah, it was no. the same. You you actually I never ma- realized they were the same filmmaker. Yeah. Still the artist because the artistry part there's like this animation that's in both right. movies and supposedly John Cusack hates both films but has since embraced Better Off Dead but he didn't want to make yeah, one crazy summer an, but I mean he's gotten lighter on it but he's still like any re- reunion stuff and he which is crazy because he's been in some not so good movies as of late so I don't know how you pick and choose you know but. Yeah, 1408 um, was the last one he made that I was really into. I think I think that's what it was called. The, the, the haunted room at the hotel. Yeah. Yeah. That was it with Sam Jackson. I thought yeah. that movie was super dope. Like, and then he went still, on to do the cell, which I don't talk about. <laughs> yeah, we don't talk about the cell. Unless we're talking about the cell with Jennifer Lopez, which was awesome. That was like 1998 or 99. Did you ever um, see that? I haven't seen that. 
Oh, but, dude, it's got Vincent D'Onofrio in it. And really, and I think Vince Vaughn, I think, might be in it as a role. But my, it's my it's favorite awesome. film of all time is Full Metal Jacket. So anything with Vincent D'Onofrio, I'm like, I'm green light uh, on that. So I'll uh, uh, so add it to my Kubrick list. Fan too. Oh, he, oh yeah. I've downstairs I've got my uh my Kubrick coffee table book, and I'm I, I could talk about Kubrick for hours and hours, but yeah, full metal jacket. I mean, there's Do you not notice that every Kubrick film, there's a homicidal suicidal pairing. Hmm. So in, in full metal jacket, he kills the um, you know, the the sergeant or whatever, and then he kills himself, right? Mm-hmm. In Clockwork Orange, he they try to get him to kill himself. They try to murder him by getting him to kill himself. Um, in Eyes Wide Shut, did the prostitute die or, uh, like by uh, drug overdose, which would be suicide, or did they kill her and make it look like it was that? Every single movie, um, you know, even Lolita, you know, he, you know, she runs across the street and is killed by a car, so she's murdered, but he kind of chased her into the street, and so was yeah. that a murder? Was that a homicide? So there's a homicidal suicidal parent, and I saw Room 209 at the midnight showing the first screening of the documentary at Sundance. Hmm. And um, I, you know, you gain up some confidence. Ask the question, and I asked the filmmakers. I'm like, okay, so did you guys, while you were making this, did you notice anything else, like about other Kubrick movies that had? Because some of the theories in that are really outlandish yeah. and crazy, and some of them like, oh, that's interesting. And I'm like, did you discover any other cool things about other Stanley Kubrick movies? And the guy got mad at me. He's like, this is about The Shining, and I'm like, ah, oh, dude, I'm just. <laughs> well, you can't understand Kubrick's. Cause Kubrick's one of those filmmakers where all of his movies, the more you watch them, the more every movie gets enhanced because you see mm. the same themes. Like, you know, I'm one of the themes that, that comes up to me a lot um, is like, he, he does a lot of like, you know, evolution and de-evolution. I mean, it's obvious 2001 is yeah, the obvious, obvious example, yeah. but like, that's one of the things I love in full metal jacket is like, you have what feels like a disjointed movie. A lot of people criticize like the second act isn't strong, which I think is bullshit. Like I think it's a really good movie all the way through, but like that movie has the trope of you have this, these guys that are total, you know, I mean, animals, you know, they're getting their head shaved. They're the crazy young guys going, getting pushed into this structured mold, Mm. some snap, then they go out to war, which everything falls apart even the way the movie's told is a totally less polished vibe which is intentional and then at the end of the movie after everything hits the fan they're marching down singing this song going back to this very structured ordered Mm. kind of way and it's like there's things like that in all of his films as well like the shining it's this story of like this keeps happening over and over again but it's like you don't get that unless you're watching all of his films and seeing him play on those tropes uh, clockwork oh. orange, same thing. You know, it's like, it's all about structure and disorder. You know, I have the score from that movie. I just play the score sometimes in my car and I just listen to the score. Did you ever see yeah. film worker, the documentary about his right hand man? No, I've, I've, I've seen stuff from that. That came out what last year, two years ago. Uh, yeah. It, and, and it's just great to show this guy. I don't know how this guy like didn't die from just only sleeping three hours a night for like 40 years or whatever he, what he was doing it, yeah. but just this, this tireless guy I watched. I, I love eyes wide shut. Yeah, um, me too. I've, I've like the theme of desire and I was watching it not too long ago. And I didn't, I never realized this until I was watching the movie. Everybody wants to fuck Tom Cruise in that movie. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, like everybody, like, I mean, there's a prostitute, there's the, the Alan, whatever the guy that's the bellhop who gives, I think it was just the one of amazing performances where he's like, he mm-hmm. left and he was scared. And like everybody, except for the guys that call him a fag while they're like walking by him or whatever, but everybody, everybody yeah. wants to fuck Tom Cruise in that movie. I have a book actually, it's a Tashin book. Um, Billy Wilder, Some Like It Hot, special edition, hmm. leather bound. It has, um, you know, th- this this reiteration of Marilyn Monroe's notes built into the cover. Hmm. And um, uh, Kubrick's lawyer was somebody that my dad knew. And um, when I graduated college, um, and I think what happened was the Some Like It Hot, because Billy Wilder and Kubrick died like in the same year, in like hmm. 2000. I think 2005, whatever it was. And the book was given was Billy Wilder gave it to Kubrick and then Kubrick regifted it to this lawyer who then gifted it to mm. me. So wow. I have this book that kind of passed through these greats and everyone's was like, what are we doing with that book? And I'm like, that book's legendary. We're not doing anything with it. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> I got to tell you, Tom Cruise. Um, do you remember when he jumped on the, they call it, you know, jumping yeah. the shark and TV and he jumped the couch. Yeah. Um, in on Oprah and he went up and he made that crazy face and he made Katie Holmes come out. And it was like this, everyone, Oprah's like, what the hell is going on? And I went and saw, um, the, the Spielberg movie, the war of the worlds. Mm-hmm. It, it was, he was doing promotion for that. And I, when I saw war of the worlds, I'm like, damn it. I still believe Tom Cruise and everything that he's in. It blows my mind. Like that he could do the craziest, most batshit thing and, and crazy eyes. And if you talk mm-hmm. to people that know him, he's very generous and all that, I'm sure. But I still believe him in every role that he plays, no matter yeah. what. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. I, yeah. He's so good. And it, but it's also like, and you watch that guy's white shot and you're like, he's too good at this. This <laughs> feels, he's a feels, little too formulaic. Feels a little true to life. Uh, uh, well, the last question I'll ask here uh, is if you were given the green light to remake any film, what would you choose and why? Whoa. Wow. Well, I wouldn't do Psycho. Gus Van Sant did that. that was- <laughs> it turned out really <laughs> it well. Turned out, it, it turned out. Um, wow. You're asking really good questions that I feel like require a lot of thought that, um, you know what I... I <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking off the top of my head because I'm thinking like an 80s movie, but I, I, I wouldn't touch any John Hughes movies because that's basically sacrilegious. Yeah. But I'm trying to think of like, what's an 80s movie that wasn't very good, that, but that could have been a little bit more awesome. Um, did you ever see my science experiment or my mm-hmm. science project? And this guy, I think it, it might be Pete Berg or it's this guy that looked like Pete Berg. <laughs> um because people are unfortunate for him (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I can't remember but but he had this he he somehow created this like time machine and 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 it was this great premise Mm. but it was just it it wasn't that great of a movie but it it was kind of like oh this is really cool and then i was like "Eh." (laughs) i mean once again i i'm sure if i gave this more thought i could come up with a much better response about a movie that i wanted to be good but then that wasn't good Um, which is the right approach because people always go like oh my god my favorite movie uh this and i'm like why would you remake it then like what's the movie it's got to be that like missed potential thing i think right it's got to be something that just didn't turn out it's like i'd remake shawshank don't touch shawshank you know what i mean what are you gonna do like i like like there's some nick cage movies that you know i think it could go back and be redone you know obviously a little bit differently you know um (laughs) because he just goes a little bit too cagey with it did you see pig i haven't 
I mean, I, I love Wow. I mean, it was such a moving uh, film for me that, you know, he's such a good actor. Oh yeah. Given the right director. It's like, it's like when he's, cause like the, the thing is you get cage. Like, so like, if you don't know how to harness that, which I don't think I would, I, you know what I mean? Like, but he's, he's such a good, you know, you I mean, you watch like Werner uh, or Werner Herzog's, uh, mm. you know, movie with him, like bad Lieutenant. And you're like, this is a really good performance. Like he's crazy. But like, if the other actors were doing, if they were on the frequency he was on in that movie, there could have been, I think it could have been a lot, a lot better, yeah. but he's good. Like he just looks bizarre next to people that are playing it on a different world they're not in yeah. this universe that he's in oh yeah and he's i mean look i mean he won an oscar i think for for leaving las vegas right mm-hmm. i think and i mean come on i mean the i mean his his track record the 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 massive weight of whatever the, the movie that just came out i thought it was okay um but i thought pig was like go it's probably on who yeah, check it out. neon made it i mean i've seen it four times now and the performance is very subtle but if as a filmmaker um Anytime people, you always get these guys that come in from Jersey and they're really good with dialogue and you'll read the script and these great dialogue, but the scene doesn't drive the movie, Mm -hmm. right? And every scene has to push it forward and there's an arc within every scene. And every scene in that movie has just an amazing arc and and the the theme of grief that kind of takes place with it. I just, I just love that movie. You know, movie I would remake. I was just thinking rad. Did you ever see rad? Is that the, is that the biking movie? The BMX bike movie. Nicole Kidman's first role. <laughs> Crew Jones is going to take on Hell Track. No, it's Lori Loughlin. Actually, mm. there's thought- this great scene where where they're playing Semi and Angel, and they're like they're like bike dancing. I guess you call it. <laughs> and uh, and and Lori Loughlin, you know, they just keep going to cutaways of some dude with a wig on, but like right. the, the stunt double has like a mustache or something. And at one point where they're both doing like at the drums, they're doing like these spins on their wheelies. And Lori Loughlin's character, I'm 99 percent sure has a mustache. <laughs> like <laughs> one of Nicole Kidman's first movies was called BMX Bandits. I think that was oh. her first. So that's interesting. Lori Loughlin and Nicole Kidman connection starting in the BMX world. There you go. Might be onto something. Every performance she gives um, is just so good, especially mm. like Little Big Lies. Um, That's a great show. I yeah, mean, we just watched that. Great yeah. series. We watched The Northman, and then I went into uh, Big Little Lies. And then so her son in The Northman is her husband in Big Little Lies. And you're like, Ooh. oh, Sarsgaard. And then <laughs> Very uncomfortable. That's, and, the, and you almost can think that this, like, there's like pastiche to that. And, yeah. you know, that inadvertent pastiche, like uh, in our movie, in, in Talk to Me, the opening scene, Chuto Ejifor is walking into prison to see his brother. And the song playing is This is a Man's World, right? Yeah. And after watching it, and Casey Lemons, who directed it, who, you know, did the Harriet Tubman movie or whatever, um, Harriet, he was in Kiki Boots. His breakout role was in Kiki Boots, where he in drag sings This is a Man's World. And then if you watch the movie, it's like, oh, is there like a like a homosexual like under yeah like was that intended or unintended pastiche that like there was yeah. this element to it that makes you think of that you know yeah. I don't know but yeah, sometimes you, you're always like am I overestimating or underestimating the thought process behind this decision you know like is there something beyond it and and you know that's again like going back to Kubrick like I always love when there is stuff like that where you're like there's something here like there's this intentional something on the part 
at least to choose to believe that there's something there. <laughs> it's intended. Nicole Kidman and she was an Aquaman too, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't enjoy Aquaman, but all I remember from that movie was when she kissed her sons on the lips. I thought it was very like, like this know, is odd, <laughs> weird <like> choice, <laughs> very like first basey to me, you know? <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, right. Like I don't know, that seems a little, a little too much on that thing, you know? And then yeah. like, like uh, when you were talking about the other film, did you ever see Apocalypto? Mm-mm. Mel no, Gibson's Apocalypto. So that's where you watch a movie. That's so Mel Gibson's, you know, basically anti-Semite that like, you know, he's telling like, you know, his, his ex-wife should just blow me and he's having like a heart attack and uh, like, you can't see him, but I got to He is this, he's a good filmmaker and yeah, it's, it's how he's really, you know, Hacksaw Ridge or whatever it was, but Apocalypto is epic. Hmm. And, and I love that movie, but then you're sitting there going like, well, I don't know, like you're trying to reconcile with this like yeah. i love this movie. it's like any kevin spacey movie now mm-hmm. right yeah. can i watch the kevin spacey movie knowing that he's maybe raping people yeah so maybe yeah my my thing on that because like i separate art from artist pretty easily on a lot of stuff but like my thing is always if it's before the information was out i can watch okay. those if it's after, so like Roman Polanski's films that he's still making, I just won't watch. Mm. But like Rosemary's Baby, I'm like, there's still a lot of people bringing their career best to this thing where they didn't know. Like, I have a really hard time with actors that still work with Woody Allen. Like, I'm like, mm. how do I, how do I watch this? Because you know, like, you know this. So it's like, it's for me, it's like historically, if nobody knew what was happening when they were signing up, that's a different story. And there's a Mm -hmm. lot of craft going into it beyond just this skeezy director actor, Mm -hmm. but it's like, man, you're casting Kevin Spacey now. I don't know. I don't think I'm going to be checking that out. It's kind of a weird, but everybody draws their own line there, I guess, where they, did did you watch the the documentary, the HBO documentary? Mm -mm. Oh, one Woody Allen. Uh I watched the first bit of it. I haven't watched the whole thing though. Cause it's, I mean, I, I totally go, okay, something definitely happened and all that. But uh, what was the, the wife's name that was in Rosemary's oh, uh, Baby? Uh, not Bridget. Um, oh, my God. I, can't I always get mixed up with on her name. Bridget and Fonda. Um, yeah. Oh, my God. But, but you know what yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting because she was, like, married to Frank Sinatra, right? Mm-hmm. And then she, who was, like, 50-something when she was, like, 20, and then she went on to have an affair with, was it Roman Polanski? She, like, left him for, like, Roman Polanski. And yeah. then she left Rome Plancy for this other dude. Yeah. And then she went to Woody Allen and I can't help, but watch the, the documentary going like something's wrong with her too. Yeah. Well, um, because she, she has like a million kids and like a few of them have died. And like, like, you know, so I'm like yeah. sitting there going like, I'm, I'm not saying that Woody Allen isn't a bad guy, but I'm going like, I don't know. There's a lot of things to unpack in this documentary. That <laughs> Yeah. Well, I have a hard time with any, I, I like the documentaries that are kind of, like you mentioned the verite element where you just watch and come away with a conclusion versus, you know, I mean, some documentaries have an obvious ax to grind, but, um, but anyway, on, on that Mia note, Farrow. <laughs> Mia Farrow, Mia Farrow. <laughs> I had to look it up. Yeah. Cause I know like, Oh my, I shouldn't have wrote. Cause now I, I, you remember Ronan Farrow so well, but yeah, yeah there is that conflict when you're watching film sometimes where, like what you were, when they think of this with the Northman, you're like, wait a minute, they're like yeah. husband and wife, and he's abusive, and now he's this. It's like, yeah, she can play yeah. anything, but it's weird. Yeah, 
Well, on that note, Rosemary's Baby is streaming now on Amazon Prime. Go check it out. Uh, <laughs> there's a little quick. It's a plug. dope movie. Uh, uh, but if somebody wants to connect with you, find you know, uh, connect with you and just follow what you're doing, or if they want to check out more from your whiskey company, what's the best place for them to do that? Uh, you can go to blindbarrels.com, and uh, you know, if you message our message our support line there, you can always somehow get to me. Um, you know, support at blindbarrels.com. And uh, the business of amateurs and adjust your color. Uh, the two documentaries I made um, are on Amazon Prime right now. Um, and I don't know if Talk to Me is, but uh, you know, hopefully there'll be some other things. Uh, I've been looking at them like, oh, it looks like I make a film about every eight years. So I'm due like up. another two years from now. I got another one. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for, for jumping on. And if you're listening to this and you want to know more about the whiskey company specifically uh, over on our show, figuring it out, uh, we're going to be doing an episode featuring blind barrels. So uh, that'll be a lot of fun. I'll link to it in the show notes of this episode as well. But uh, Bobby, thanks so much for jumping on and having oh, this thanks, conversation. Sir. It's been a pleasure. I know we can start talking about movies for days. I'm sure we can just go nuts with it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Film School Podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, don't forget to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe so you won't miss a single episode.